But hey, we're here, we're, we're thinking about the Christmas story, a Christmas revolution. What do we mean by that? Well, think about it this way. When the kings and queens and world leaders travel to engage in affairs of state, when they do this, they usually dress themselves in their finest apparel. And they surround themselves with all the trappings of their wealth and their status. When the Queen of England visited America some years ago, in her 4,000 pounds of luggage, she had two outfits for every occasion. She had one morning outfit, just in case someone died. There were 40 pints of plasma in case something terrible happened. My favorite, she had white kid leather toilet seat covers. Right? She had with her her own hairdresser, two valets, and a host of other attendants. But listen to these words from Luke's Gospel, chapter 2, verse 7. Mary brought forth her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger because there was no room in the inn. When Jesus, the King of Kings, comes into our world, he clothed himself with dust. This firstborn son, the one the prophet Isaiah, writing about centuries before, called the great light, the mighty God, the Prince of Peace. He's born to marry a dirt poor teenager. He's born into a suffering, subjugated people. He's born, we suppose, into a stable, a shed, somewhere where they kept animals. And he's laid in a manger, a rough animal feeding trough. And this little family, very soon, will be on the run and they will become refugees. I wonder, as I enter the story again, this Advent season, as I walk alongside the characters of the Christmas story as I try to see these events through their eyes. I wonder, did Mary comprehend the wonder of all these things, all these events that are swirling around her? Because this story changes absolutely everything. The story of this baby is a revolution. And I think in the world today, there are lots and lots of opinions about God and ideas about God. And it can be confusing. It can be confusing to know what God is like. And if he's there at all, and if he is there, what's he think of us? What's he want from us? And I think, when I think about this, that usually people have you know, one of three pictures of God. Usually one of three kind of popular, common pictures of God. The first one is this kind of idea that God's like a butler. But not that butler. That's Gerald Butler, the actor. This kind of a butler. 
this kind of a butler, the butler that brings you what you want when you want it. The butler that's there to grant your wishes. I'm sure the queen had one or two on hand when she takes her trips. But this idea that God's a bit like a cosmic butler. And we come with our wish list and we say, God, this is what we want. And he's there to grant it. I think that's a common image that many people have of God. That's one. There's a second image. And it's this idea that God's a bit like a cosmic doctor. That he's there, but you only really call on him when you are in a bit of a jam. I mean, how many of us, when we're walking down the street, maybe past our doctor's surgery, and we think to ourselves, wow, I haven't been to the doctor's in a while. Wonder how the doctor's doing. I'll drop in, have a coffee, catch up. No, we don't do that. Of course we don't. We only go to the doctor when we have a problem that we can't deal with ourselves. When we're in a crisis. And the doctor has the knowledge and the insight that can help us. And for a lot of people, that's their picture of God. When I'm in a bit of a jam, when the heat is on, that's when... I'll call on God. And he'll help me. And then there's the third picture of God that many, many people have. And it's this idea that God's a bit like a cosmic headmaster. A cosmic headmaster. So I'm going to share a little bit of my story. See, when I was in primary school, primary school kids in church this morning... Put your hand up. Put your hand up. If you're still here, awesome. You guys are so, so, so fortunate. You are so blessed. Because I know teachers in schools today are generally, for the most part, especially the ones that are here in Fitzroy, absolutely fantastic. I know head teachers, headmasters in schools today are brilliant. They're amazing. They're creative. They love children. They love education. They're thinking of your best and you achieving your potential. I didn't have one of those. My headmaster was a bit like this guy. And he used to stand in the corridor at school. And whenever we would come into school in the mornings, he'd be standing there with his arms folded. And his pipe in his mouth, he smoked a pipe in school. (laughs) And he'd be eyeing us all, watching us, waiting. And when you go into his class and you'd sit down, and I had him when I was in P7, sometimes, some days, he would go to the blackboard and he would draw One of these with chalk on the blackboard. He wouldn't say anything. He'd just draw it. And some of you know what it is. It's a tomahawk. It's a Native American axe. A throwing axe. I'm convinced if he had one, he would have thrown it. But he drew it on the blackboard and that was his silent communication to us. Because it meant that he was on the warpath. 
He was on the warpath. He was watching. He was looking. And if you fell out of line, you were going to be in trouble. And then beside the blackboard where he often drew his tomahawk, he had a list of all the names of all the kids in the class. My name was up there. And beside that list with a little piece of blue tack, he had a big black marker. And when you messed up, when you did something wrong, you'd get a black mark beside your name. Maybe you forgot your homework. Maybe you were late to school that morning. Black mark. Maybe you were late coming in from break time. Black mark. Maybe you were talking in class when you should have been listening. Black mark. Maybe your handwriting wasn't quite neat enough. Black mark. And when you accumulated five black marks beside your name, some of you in church this morning are thinking back and you're remembering, I had similar experiences. It's all coming back. When you had five black marks accumulated beside your name, he would call you up to the desk and he would bring out his secret weapon. One of these. A cane. I remember the first day I got called up to the desk. My handwriting was terrible. I'll confess it. He was looking, I knew he was looking at my book because I could see him. He'd look at my book and then he'd look at me. And he'd look at my book. And then he'd look at me. And then he got up and he got the big black marker. And there was the black mark beside my name. And he counted them. And then he looked at me. And he didn't say anything. He just did that. And I got up from my desk and I walked up and he opened the drawer and he took out his cane and he said, hold out your hand. And I got two on each hand and it stung. And I'm standing there going, not going to cry, not going to cry, not going to cry. And I got back down to my desk and the desk had those metal frames that were always cold. And I got my hands on the metal frames and I just grabbed them and I went, And then I went home to tell my dad. And he'd been my dad's teacher when my dad had been in school. And I think that's probably why he didn't like me very much because my dad got in trouble a lot. And I remember going in to tell my dad and my dad's only question was, did you cry? And I said, no. He said, that's good. (laughs) But for the longest time, for the longest time, I associated God and my picture of God was kind of like my headmaster in primary school. I, I thought God was constantly mad at me. I thought God was keeping a list and he was checking it twice. I thought God had my name in a big book and, and he had a big cosmic celestial marker. And every time I messed up, every time I said something I shouldn't have said, done something I shouldn't have done, thought something I shouldn't have thought, that there was a big black mark beside my name. And if I got enough black marks, 
he would delight in punishing me. And even when I became a Christian, I really struggled with this, this concept, this picture of God. And it wasn't really until in the 1990s when Steve Stockman took a whole bunch of us from Ireland to the Greenbelt Festival. And I was standing in a field and I was listening to Julie Miller and Buddy Miller talking about God. I'm talking about God as a divine parent who loves us just as we are, though we're not as we should be. That started for me. The penny started to drop. I started to realize that, that God was nothing like that mean, angry picture I had of him. He was altogether different. Not only did he love me, he liked me. What's your picture of God? A.W. Tozer said, what we think about when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Because it influences everything about us. I think there's a tendency for so many people to adopt one of these pictures of God. Or to invent a kind of a cuddly, slushy God that we wish existed. And then we face challenges, we face crisis, we face disappointment, we face pain in life. And that God doesn't measure up to what we see in our hard and broken, painful world. And for many people, we struggle. But when it comes right down to it, the question is not what kind of God would we like to have. The question is, what sort of God do the world and the Bible and Jesus show us to be real? We need a revelation. And at Christmas, we got one. We got more than that. We got a revolution. Because Christmas is utterly revolutionary. Because Jesus revolutionizes our understanding of God. Jesus was and continues to be God's supreme revolution. He comes into the world in the humblest of ways to make God known. Colossians chapter 1 verse 15 states, No one can see God but Jesus Christ is exactly like him. Jesus said of himself his most controversial claims, the claims that really ultimately got him killed, He said things like, the Father and I are one. Jesus was saying, and you know this, when you see me, you see God. The things that I say, it's God's word for you. The things that I do, this is God doing those things. The Father and I are one. See, the Christmas child is not just a special baby. It's more than that. God didn't, did not merely pass a visit. Jesus is God become one of us. He leaves the eternal light of heaven and in the stable he entered our darkness because that is what love does. God in the flesh, the God man, He shows us exactly what God is like. 
And it's probably the hardest thing to get our heads around in all of theology. That God comes into the world and becomes one of us. Philippians 2 that we've read this morning gives us a glimpse as to how the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. How God and man were united in this God-man, Jesus. Look at verse 6 of Philippians chapter 2. It tells us that Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not regard equality with God something to be grasped. Let me ask you a question. Who's equal with God? Who's equal with God? The answer to that question can only be what Paul is driving at here in this passage. Only God is equal to God. And Jesus is God. But incredibly, we're told in verse 7 of Philippians 2 that Christ emptied himself, taking on an aspect like that of a servant. So how did God add deity, add humanity to his deity? Some would argue that Christ gave up his deity to take on humanity, but that's wrong. Christ didn't give up his deity. He was fully God and he was fully man. For Jesus, who was omniscient and omnipresent, something drastic had to happen for him to become fully human. And in Philippians 2, verse 7, we're told what happened. He made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. God chose to temporarily cloak his deity, to veil it, in order that his humanity could find full expression. By adding humanity, he chose to temporarily restrict the full expression of his deity. We sing it every Christmas time. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail incarnate deity. And he lives his life never more than man, but never less than God. Perhaps this will help as we get... Our heads around this. Imagine from, with me for a moment that there's a king and he rules a vast kingdom. And this king is everything. Servants to tell what to do and to wait upon him. A rich wardrobe, vast banquets at every meal. Everything that he desires is brought to him. Then one day he's surveying his kingdom. He's looking out at all that he has and he observes beggars in the street. And he feels pity and he wants to help them. And the king decides that to really help these homeless people, he needs to become like them. While still remaining king, still retaining every right and authority and all the riches, he takes off his royal garments and he puts on the clothes of a beggar. And he leaves his castle and he goes to the streets to live like a beggar. And he lives exactly like they live. Begging for food, sleeping in the cool streets. People pass by mocking and spitting on him. The king suffers greatly. And here's the thing, as king, he can call on his army at any time to retaliate against those people who treat him unjustly. But he chooses not to. Because he cannot do that and be at the same time experiencing life as a beggar. The homeless can't call for an army to protect them. So to fully experience the beggar's life, he lays aside not his kingdom or his kingship, but 
the use of the rights that are his as king. The king adds a beggar's life to his royal life. And that's a picture of what the incarnation is all about. Christ, who is eternal God, reveals his kingdom in vulnerability, solidarity with the poor, and self-sacrifice. Through him who was rich, for our sakes, becomes poor. That through him, we who were poor might become rich. Christmas is a revolution. Jesus revolutionizes our understanding about God. And what does this tell us about God? It tells us something. Something amazing. It tells us something we need to be reminded about every waking day. It tells us that God loves you and me deeply. Deeply. Ephesians 3 verse 18. It's a beautiful verse. And I pray that you and all God's people will have the power to understand the greatness of Christ's love. How wide and how long and how high and how deep that love is. And you see it vividly portrayed at Christmas time. That love in action because that love stoops so low. He loves you deeply. And it also tells us that God understands our struggles. Hebrews 4 says, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. He knows what it's like. He's felt your pain. He knows it's a struggle. He understands. And he shows us that God is not the good sheriff out to track us down and punish us, but that rather he's the good shepherd who's pursuing us just so he could love us. Just so he could love us. And it might really seem seriously ridiculous that the creator of the cosmos chose from among his numberless galaxies and spinning stars one tiny rock of a planet on which to enter human life in the most humble of ways. But it's this love story. A story of God's cosmos dwarfing love for you and for me. A king who would come to die on a cross and rescue the one he loves. Jesus revolutionizes our understanding of God and he revolutionizes our understanding of sacrifice. The king of heaven becomes powerless. The light of the world descends into darkness. The giver of life is born to die. This is God's solution to the darkness in our world. We might have responses to the world's brokenness. Christmas is God's response. And in that stable, the Christmas child, though speechless, is speaking volumes. And essentially he's saying, 
I'm here. I'm here. And I'm very near. And I've come to shoulder your burdens because I understand. And I love you. And as he grows up, Jesus' burden-sharing nature takes him all the way to a God-forsaken death because Christmas leads to a cross. And Jesus bears the cost for all that separate us, us from God because that is what love does. So are we ready to follow his pioneering, peace-setting example? Are we ready to be someone who shares the love of God? Someone who spreads the message of a compassionate, graceful God? Someone who's willing to model revolutionary sacrifice like Christ? Christmas is an invitation to enter a story that changes the world. A story about the radical solidarity of Jesus' followers who commit themselves to standing with the least of these at home or in the far corners of the world in the midst of injustice. It's a story about passionate resistance from people who refuse to be enveloped by another's empire's demands and instead live simply and faithfully for their king. It's a story of revolution. The revolution has begun. Fitzroy, celebrate, sing, pray, meditate, dance, love your way into the story. That is a great joy for all people. Let's pray. Let's pray. Jesus, Lord Jesus, we thank you, we praise you that you have come. We thank you for this revolution that has begun. These strange, humble beginnings. But this glorious story that changes everything. Thank you that you've come to revolutionize our understanding of God. To revolutionize our understanding of sacrifice. And we pray that you would help us as your people to follow your example. And we pray in your name. Amen.